The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Carlos Rivero, who is the Chief Data Officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Hi, Carlos. Thank you so much for joining us on AI Today. Hey, Ron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Carlos, and thanks so much for joining us. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role as Chief Data Officer. Fantastic, Kathleen. So yes, in my current role, I'm the Chief Data Officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Before that, and I've been in that role since August of 2018. And before that, I was the Chief Data Officer and Chief Enterprise Architect for the Federal Transit Administration at the U.S. Department of Transportation. That was there for a little over two years as well. And then prior to that, I was a physical scientist with NOAA Fisheries down at the Southeast Fisheries Science Center for about 15 years. So I've been in public service right now going over 19 years in both federal and, and state experience. Well, that's great. I think that provides a lot of really nice, diverse set of experience you know, from fisheries to the federal government to state government. And I, I think that's part of the reason why we'd love to have your participation, that we had your participation at the Data for AI Week conference that ran from September 14th through 18th, 2020. It was, of course, a virtual conference, as everything is these days. And we were focusing on the data side of AI. And for our listeners who may be interested, the content is actually still available. So you can come and you can hear the panel that Carlos was on, where we were focusing on some of the state and local challenges for AI and data management. If you go to data, AI, conf, date, that's D-A, data, spelled like data, A-I-C-O-N-F dot com. It's free, so you can go on there and you can check all that content. It'll be made available for many months, so you definitely should check it out. And Carlos was on a panel really sharing some of the unique insights of applying AI machine learning and also some of the interesting challenges of wrangling data at the state level. So maybe, Carlos, for those who, who weren't in attendance or maybe even to motivate folks to listen to the panel, you know, what are some of your insights that you have seen in terms of just the challenge of managing data and getting it to do some magical things like machine learning at the state level? Well, I mean, really, one of the most basic things is getting people involved in the process. And, and governance plays a key role in that, obviously. When, you know, as we kind of evolve and want to leverage data as a strategic asset within the Commonwealth, we realize that the participation of individuals, not just horizontally across the organization, but also vertically through different levels of state government, is critical for our ability to integrate those data assets in a meaningful way. And when I talk about the vertical participation, I'm talking about you know data stewards, data custodians, data owners, executive sponsors, being able to participate in the overall governance discussion, because everyone has a role to play in our ability to leverage data as a CJ asset to be able to incorporate that into our data analytics, derive better intelligence. And within that, you know, comes in machine learning and, and artificial intelligence to be able to gain as much value and insight from the data assets that we currently have. Yes, indeed. Go ahead, Kathleen. Yeah, definitely. And kind of to follow up with that, on this podcast, we talk a lot about AI and data at the national level. But 
maybe you can dig a little bit deeper into what are some of the unique challenges around data at the state level? Because I know that, you know, in general, there's general data challenges, but then we can also talk about, you know, there's differences between state versus local versus federal. So the fun thing about uh, state is that you get to play with all the businesses at one time. You know, in, in the federal space, like when I was in North Fisheries, we're very focused on fisheries and fisheries applications. Now, mind you, you know, as a physical scientist, I really worked with a lot of different data sets because I was really more in the interaction of those individual populations in their environments, right? And, and anthropogenic impact on those environments and how does that change the behavior of individuals within a species, right? And so you, you have to look at the bigger picture and be able to integrate data from a variety of different sources, other NOAA services, right? So I was within NOAA fisheries, but we also had the satellite service, we had the ocean service, we had the weather service, right? So being able to bring in data assets from a variety of different services, different lines of business, if you will, to give you a better picture of what's happening in that environment. But that's very unique. Like more often than not, individuals within that particular industry really only focus on the data that they collect or, or they work with on a regular basis and not really look at the bigger picture of what other data assets they can bring in. Same thing for in federal transit, right? In federal transit, it was very limited in their, you know, what their perspective was with regards to, you know, what data assets are we going to bring in to really understand what's happening out in the real world? They were really focused on providing, you know, grants to transit agencies and authorities to make sure that people are able to get to use public transportation in the most effective way. So it's very, very siloed. But then when you talk about a state government and you talk about you know being able to leverage data as an asset at that level, you're really talking about across all of the different lines of businesses, whether it's education, transportation, criminal justice, you know, environment, what have you, health, you know, all of those lines of business now come under your purview and you really have to start to understand what are their unique perspectives and how can you engage those individuals within each of those lines of businesses to be able to see the value in integrating their data assets and making better data-driven decisions from that integration. So from a state perspective, you really start to get a better handle on the overall picture of what's happening out in the real world versus a very, and I don't want to use this term negatively, but a myopic view of you know what your swim lane looks like and only that which falls within your swim lane are you paying attention to. But at the same time, I've also realized that you know data governance and the use of data as an asset is really a fractal type of problem where it doesn't matter what kind of scale you look at it it's going to have the same patterns associated with it. some of the same issues that we dealt with at the federal level, we deal with at the state level, we deal with at the local level, right? Because it's not a matter of, are these issues different? It's just the scale at which we operate in that just kind of gives you a little bit of a, of a difference in what the issue is. But the reality is that it's very core. The majority of the issues we deal with with regards to data governance and data sharing and leveraging data in analytics and machine learning really comes back to the process and the people aspect of the people process technology interaction. Yeah, that's really key. And I wanted to get back to something you had said earlier, because people are now realizing, I think the general population are realizing the value of data and how much I think people are being much more mindful, I guess, critical and inspect introspective at the data that's coming out, especially at the state levels. Because if you think about what's happening now in this current, you know, world we're living in, people are paying attention to things like coronavirus statistics that are coming out at state levels, right? And sometimes county levels and local levels, right? They're paying attention to things like voter data. They're paying attention to all this stuff, which is not federal level data. A lot of this is state level data, right? And people, you know, people who 
are maybe data literate understand what some of these things mean. People who are not data literate don't. And of course, I think that's where, you know, we've never really had a data education when you go through school. You, yeah. know, you get some basic, <laughs> you get basic math, but you don't really understand, you know, you, we don't, we're not really taught statistics in high school. You have to really sort of get at the collegiate level to get it better, unless you're at more advanced levels in high school, perhaps. And that's not even all of high school students, it's just some. So I guess, you know, my question to you is especially the challenges of people being much more protective of their data. And you're talking a little about silos because some of the data I mentioned may reside at the state level, but it's within various state agencies. So how do you deal with like this, I guess, data fiefdoms or I don't know how how you want to think about it. I'm really trying to pull together as the CDO for a state. How do you try to synthesize all this stuff together? That's a great question, Ron. And, you know, it's something that all CDOs across all industries have dealt with in a variety of different ways. And for us, we've adopted what we call the Commonwealth Data Trust. And essentially, it's a legal framework that identifies the roles and relationships of each of the entities involved in the data sharing relationship. So when you talk about data sharing, that you can boil it down to some very, very basic participants. At the very core, you have the data provider, right? That organization that's providing their data to somebody for use in, in some kind of project, right? But then, and that's in the normal data sharing environment as well. So if you have a normal point-to-point data sharing relationship, you have a data provider, you have a data receiver, they work things out, you know, they kind of go through the legal wranglings and deal with all that stuff. And that process usually takes six, nine, sometimes even 12 months to just get through the legal part of, you know, who's responsible for what and how you're going to secure my data and what kind of data do you want? And, and you always get into the data dance, right? The, well, what data do you want? Well, what data do you have? Well, tell me what you want and I'll tell you if I have it. No, tell me what you have and I'll tell you if I need it, right? And so that data dance is one of those interesting aspects of, you know, any data sharing relationship. And so what we've done is we've taken out the whole data dance and really establish what we call the Commonwealth Data Trust, which, like I said, is the legal framework that you know establishes the roles and really, um, responsibilities of each of the different entities. So you have a data provider who is a data trust member. You have the trustee who's responsible and accountable for making sure that only those organizations and the individuals within those organizations that have been allowed to have access do have access to the data that's provided by the data provider. Then you have the data trust user, which is that organization that is the recipient of the data from the trust. And then you have the individual data trust user, which is you know that individual team member or members that are going to access the data on behalf of the data trust user that will actually do the analytics and receive the data and put their hands on the keyboard and that kind of stuff. So essentially, that data trust, that legal framework is what kind of greases the wheels, so to speak, to really, number one, create a consistent path for establishing that legal relationship between these four different entities, but also then creates the environment by which we can facilitate that transaction, right? So in essence, what the CDO is almost like a catalyst or a broker of data sharing transactions, right? And and in that role, we're helping to create enterprise solutions that will allow those transactions to happen as frictionless as possible, but at the same time, maintain security and confidentiality of the individuals represented in each of those data sets. And we do that by de-identifying that data and pre-linking it or pre-integrating it before we send it out for an academic researcher or a locality or a nonprofit organization to use. And so that's part of the services that we provide as a CDO shop is that, you know, we bring in data assets from a wide variety of different organizations. We pre-integrate those data assets and create, you know, the semantic data layer that says these are how all of these different data sets are linked together by all these different keys. And then when a user logs into the system that has been given authority to use it, 
specifies that they want to run a query based off of this one table and then integrates these other tables from these other organizations, we're able to do that because we already have the mapping done prehand. Yeah, that's great. You know, I really like that term data dance because I think that many organizations, you know, whether they're government or private industry, go through that data dance quite regularly. I wanted to follow up a little with this though, because I, you know, I know that you have a really broad range of experience. You've worked with the federal government. Now you're at the state level, but, and I know that the federal government has challenges that different agencies and different departments and different groups don't always necessarily talk to each other and share best practices. Some groups are good about that. I know that there are some communities of practice that are trying to help with that and get people talking more. Also, Ron and I host the monthly AI and government event because we've seen a lot of great things going on in the government and people need a platform to be able to share that. But at the state level, you know, how are you or are you in general talking with other states about best practices around data, you know, data sharing, data usage, data collection? Um, and, and if not, do you think that there should be more sharing? Well, first of all, we absolutely have a peer group of state CDOs and that's called the State CDO Network and it's sponsored by the Beck Center at Georgetown University and a good friend Tyler Claycamp is the director for the State CDO Network. He was formerly the State CDO for Connecticut and had been directing the State CDO Network as part of his duties as the CDO for Connecticut because he realized the importance of making sure that we shared and worked with each other and provided. It's almost like a support group, if you will. And we joke about it, but in in many ways, it, it, it very much is. And so, you know, he was fortunate enough to be able to have Georgetown pick up the State CEO network and say, you know what, this is such a valuable thing. We think you should do this full time. And he wholeheartedly agreed. And, and for, you know, to our benefit, he has been in that position for well over a year now, I think. And we're very, very fortunate to have his leadership to bring all of the state CDOs together to have these types of conversations. I mean, you know, they say misery loves company, but it's only our shared suffering that really brings us together and be able to say, hey, I know you've had this problem. I know someone else is having this problem. How do we solve this problem together and come up, like you said, with best practices and solutions that we can all apply to make our lives a lot easier? There's no sense in reinventing the wheel of going through this on your own. If someone has already experienced it and, and gone through it and come up with a solution that maybe with a little bit of tweaking, you may be able to implement yourself within your organization. So yeah, absolutely. We definitely have a support group that we rely very much on each other. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's the thing about data and information, you know, versus say applications, because one thing to share an application, because we, you know, that's, that's a lot more complicated, you know, to like to share an implementation, but data can flow like water, you know, at least that's the, th- <laughs> <laughs> that's the theory, right? Be like water, said Bruce Lee. So, um, <laughs> but that's really intriguing. Now, obviously the topic for this podcast is AI today. And it's kind of funny because we have not really brought up anything about AI and machine learning. But I think sort of for those of us that have been practitioners and looking at AI machine learning, you know, obviously the hidden secret of AI machine learning is really is all about data because with machine learning, we're trying to derive insights and we're trying to derive learnings and we're trying to create models that can pattern behaviors based on learnings from data. So it really is all about data. Of course, we're trying to do these extra things, which is assuming we have data that's in the right shape and format that we have. Now we can apply it to these applications. So maybe looking just a little little bit into some of those applications, you know, how have you been seeing Commonwealth of Virginia maybe taking its data and applying these more advanced forms of analytics, you know, applying machine learning, some of these 
patterns of AI that we talk about all the time, you know, maybe give us some insights as to where things are now and maybe where things are heading with those applications. So I definitely know that our friends over at VITA, the Department of Transportation, are definitely looking into machine learning to sift through large volumes of data to identify patterns in like pavement maintenance and traffic volumes and accident probabilities, you know, things to to be able to make us safer on the roads. So I know they've been looking into that and obviously, you know, being able to bring in the data from a variety of different sources that will, you know, provide all of the indicators that we need has always been a challenge. And then only that, but, you know, initially bringing it in is one challenge, but then operationally bringing it in continuously so that the algorithm continues to learn, right? And be able to refine and provide better intelligence as it matures. Same thing with our FACT project, the Framework for Addiction Analysis and Community Transformation, which is our opioid project that we originally started off in the Winchester community and have now expanded out to Roanoke and Southwest Virginia. And we're leveraging machine learning models as we're bringing in data from behavioral health and community health and law enforcement incidents and overdose events from the health systems and things like that to be able to start identifying what are some of the risk factors associated with substance use disorder? What are some of the indicators of substance use disorder? How do we mitigate some of those risk factors given some of the services that we have and which services have been the most effective in mitigating those risk factors? So being able to look at the human side of the services that we provide and be able to derive better intelligence, how do we tweak those services at the right time because timing is critical to be able to have an impact on the lives of the people we serve. But in a more, and I call it a little bit more mundane application of machine learning, one of the things that we're exploring is being able to leverage machine learning to help suggest what types of tags we need to add to our data dictionary to help document our data elements as we bring these data elements on board. And mind you, we have over 2,000 operational data systems in the Commonwealth in production currently. And each one of those can have hundreds, if not thousands of data elements that are associated with them. And so as we try to create this, you know, Virginia enterprise data catalog that, you know, will allow us to look at our data in a more understandable and make it more discoverable, we have that need to be able to quickly and as automatic as possible be able to document those data assets. But here's the caveat in that, you know, I know that there's already data catalogs out there that implement machine learning algorithms, but the fact is that you have to install an agent in the network where those data sources reside. And in Virginia, all of the executive branch agencies pretty much operate autonomously. Even though we have a centralized IT organization, we do have a Commonwealth-wide network, but every one of those agencies operates within their own subnet. So you don't necessarily have, I as a CDO of the Commonwealth don't have the authority to just go ahead and install agents in each of the different subdomains on our network and say, okay, run free and scan every data source and bring me back what you find. You know, we just don't have that ability. We have to be able to work on the people side and say, okay, you know, get the buy-in from the local CIOs, get the buy-in from the local data stewards and data owners and say, register your data assets. And then in that registration, you know, we can automate that process, the registration process, but the actual documentation process is not something that we can fully automate until we have enough flow or throughput that we can start to say, okay, there's definitely some similarities in the data types that we're receiving and the data elements that we're getting. And so being able to apply a machine learning model to that 
to then provide uh, suggestions to the data curators is one of the things that we're looking at implementing in the next few years. That is really interesting, you know, and I always like to get different perspectives to hear about some of those unique challenges that you have at the state level. I know that when we've talked to other people, both in the federal government and then at the state and local levels as well, they're talking about how they are using AI-enabled chatbots to help with a variety of different things. Have you implemented that at a state level? And can you share with us some of the applications that you've used it for to help? I personally have not implemented it at the state level, although I've heard rumblings of different organizations within the state playing with chatbots and and interested in implementing them. But I personally have not implemented a chatbot within the Commonwealth of Virginia. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those things that we know it's an emerging pattern. It's one of those seven patterns of AI. And the reason why we bring it up is we're in this remote world now. You know, everybody's Mm -hmm. working. Everybody's working from home. And, you know, not only are the, you know, the citizens, the constituents working from home, but the but obviously even a lot of government, you know, uh, people that, you know, that are trying to provide those services, they're also working from home. So it's kind of shifting a lot the patterns of what people may have anticipated what would be like, you know, typical opening hours for things. And when people are going to ask questions, all that stuff is kind of changing now. We'll have to see how long that is. You know, is this a temporary thing or is this like a long-term change? So it's one of those patterns. The other, other pattern that I would love to find out a little more if you're implementing it anyway is sort of like the recognition pattern. There's lots of different recognition. Of course, you know, the thing that makes news is facial recognition, but really what some of the biggest ones are just like image recognition using satellite images or camera images. You know, you talked a little about traffic. There's a lot of use of recognition to identify, you know, problem spots in terms of traffic, but also using satellite imagery for things like environmental issues, you know, mm-hmm. erosion, things like that. Have, I mean, I know we're kind of pushing, pushing the boundary here, but a little bit, but like, you know, do you know any, any efforts perhaps to use AI to do any sort of recognition of, of any of those types? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been doing that in the remote sensing world for a long time, and we just call it change detection. And so, you know, when you talk about, like, for example, in the localities, when you talk about code enforcement and zoning, they've been using that for a long time. Now, for, you know, a while, it's been human-driven, but they're transitioning over to more automated methods. When you're looking at, you know, aerial photography year over year, you know, and identifying what parcels have changed and what parcels have not. Has someone built an addition? Did they put a concrete slab? You know, things like that. That's been going on for a very long time. It's just now as we transition over to more automated, you know, methods leveraging, you know, machine learning algorithms, that has become a little bit easier to do. Same thing, like you said, in environmental quality, right? Where you're looking at either point source pollution or non-point source pollution and being able to identify, you know, what are the impacts to the environment? When did it happen? You know, how long was it there? You know, those are the kinds of things that definitely from a remote sensing perspective we're able to do. It's just a matter of, is the data accessible in a way that the machine learning algorithm can ingest it and leverage it? Do we have the computing capabilities to be able to run these models effectively over time so that, you know, as we are building out these models and and trying to get the results, we're not taking longer than real time to generate the results. So there's quite a few instances of that, but it's, I haven't gotten to that aspect, like to, to be able to look at that holistically across the Commonwealth yet. It's still in a pocket by pocket type of orientation where we haven't, I personally have not looked at, you know, how do we, what are the common needs across the different industries within the Commonwealth, the different agencies within the Commonwealth that are implementing similar types of technologies to do that type of work. Now, on, on the flip side to that, what I have been doing is standardizing on our intelligence environment. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of different agencies that either leverage, you know, Tableau or MicroStrategy or Power BI. 
And what we've done is like, well, you know, we understand that there's a lot of agencies that have the resources to be able to buy these implementations and manage them on their own. But we also know that there's a lot of agencies that don't have those resources, not just from a financial perspective of being able to acquire the infrastructure necessary to run those types of tools, but also having human resources necessary to manage and administer that kind of an environment. So one of the things that we've done is actually created our own data intelligence infrastructure that leverages the data trust. So if you as an organization participate in the data trust and make your data available into the data trust through the data virtualization or data consolidation, we can then leverage that data asset to create intelligence products that then can be disseminated either to the public as anonymous facing, public facing, but named users. So for those organizations that have partnerships with localities that don't necessarily have, you know, COV accounts, their individuals, their personnel within their agencies can participate and access those intelligence solutions, but also internal facing COV only. And so, you know, we're looking at common needs across multiple agencies and identifying what kinds of enterprise solutions we can develop that those agencies can benefit from. And AI is just another one a little bit further down the road that we will eventually start to target so that we can create commonalities and take advantage of economies of scale. That was a really great answer. I'm happy that we threw that question in. I think that that provided a lot of context for our listeners to see how you guys are doing things. So thank you for answering that question. And this has been an incredible podcast. We do have a bonus episode that we'll talk about in a little bit with Carlos. And we'll be talking more in that podcast kind of about, you know, upskilling and reskilling that workforce. I know you had brought in with this answer some issues that different agencies have around that people side. So I'm excited to dig into that in our bonus episode. But I wanted to wrap up this podcast with the question that we always ask at the end of the podcast. And I love this question because it always provides such different feedback and responses from everybody. As a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its applications to organizations, governments, and beyond? So in my opinion, it's the purpose is to augment human intelligence and be able to allow us to sift through a large amount of data, right? Large, extremely large volumes of data to be able to identify patterns and trends that are going to allow us to make better decisions faster. I don't say, you know, obviously there's, there's always that fear that, you know, the AI algorithms are going to make the decisions for us. And I think there's, in some cases, there may be some truth to that, especially in some more tedious types of decisions. But I think the more important decisions are really going to be human made and acted upon, but AI intelligence augmented. Well, that's great. And that's a really good perspective. You know, as I mentioned, we get so many different responses to that question. Some people talk about the future of autonomous vehicles. People talk about, you know, issues of ethics and kind of where things are going there. So the, the focus on the augmented intelligence future of AI is great because, you know, that, that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, AI machine learning is just another tool in the tool belt. So let's use it for the kinds of problems we're solving. So you provided fantastic insight here into this podcast. So I just want to thank you, Carlos, so much for joining us here on AI Today and participating with us. And of course, for our listeners to stay tuned because we have a bonus episode as well. So, but just a thank you for joining us here on this podcast. Thank you, Kathleen and Ron, for having me. I really appreciate being here. Yeah, thank you so much, Carlos. And as we mentioned earlier, Carlos was on a panel during our Data AI Comp. So that's Data AI C-O-N-F. We encourage you to check it out. If you were not able to attend that live, you can watch it on replay. That will be available until December 2020. 
But if you, you know, I want to, again, thank you so much, Carlos, for participating on this podcast today, because you provided some great insights into what the Commonwealth of Virginia is doing around data, AI, automation. So thank you. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this bonus episode of AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And I'm your host, Kathleen Mulch. This is our bonus episode of AI Today with Carlos Rivero, who's the Chief Data Officer for the Commonwealth of Virginia. If you haven't done so already, we encourage you to check out our AI Today main podcast with Carlos. We talked about a lot of great things there, but we're excited to have him on this bonus episode today. So welcome, Carlos, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Ron. Pleasure to be here. Yes. Yeah, so on our, our main podcast, we talked a lot about some of the insights and details as to how the Commonwealth of Virginia is dealing with data and data management and lots of the applications and the challenges. And um, one of the things we, we talked a little bit about was AI machine learning. So so maybe you could Carl, tell us a little about the future, you know, kind of like where do you see states such as Virginia, maybe as your, as your own or what you're seeing in the in just in general with your peers? How do you see the expanding use of AI and machine learning perhaps over the next few years? So, I mean, Ron, you had mentioned this in the previous uh, podcast, and I, I definitely agree with you that chatbots are, are a great kind of entryway into the state being able to leverage AI and machine learning for uh, more public engagement. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're also looking at how do we improve our services to the public while, you know, improving the outcomes that our constituents experience. And so as a result, you know, we have uh, organizations like VDOT who is implementing AI to help them identify, you know, better pavement maintenance schedules, better traffic maintenance, how to limit congestion, where are some of the, the highest areas of, of probabilities for accidents, especially severe accidents, what are some of the things that they can do to mitigate uh, some of those issues that our commuters are experiencing or individuals that, that utilize our roadways experience uh, when they're on when they're in Virginia. And on the on the same token, we also have, as I mentioned earlier, the, the FACT project, the Framework for Addiction Analysis and Community Transformation, which we're looking at utilizing machine learning algorithms to help us, you know, sift through large volumes of data with regards to mental health and and you know uh, physical health and and you know law enforcement and incidents and and substance use and things of that nature to help identify not just indicators of substance use disorder, but also what are some of the risk factors of substance use disorder so that we can get into more of a prevention mentality and then be able to identify what are the services that we as the Commonwealth can provide our citizens, our residents, that will help mitigate some of those risk factors. So really, you know, what we're talking about is being able to leverage AI and machine learning to help improve the services we provide to our residents that will ultimately provide better outcomes uh, in their lives. Yeah, that was great. And I know that we touched upon some of that in the main podcast as well. So listeners, if you'd like to hear some of Carlos's answers, I encourage you to check that out. Another thing that we had talked about in that uh, in the main podcast was about the workforce, the current workforce. And so I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this bonus episode. You know, what can st- states and local governments do to attract the skilled workforce that you need to keep up with technological innovations? So that's a great question, Kathleen. And, and one of the things that we've done in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia is actually take advantage of the talent turnover. Um, you know, our universities are, are producing an amazing amount of data talent, right? And, and it'd be very foolish for us as a state agency and even, and even localities 
to say that we can compete with the private sector for some of, of the data talent that's coming out of our universities, right? We, just the market just does not bear uh, for us to be able to compete from, from a, a, a financial standpoint um, with, with the private sector. So what we've done is we've been able to leverage academic institutions and their engagement with the Commonwealth to be able to provide two uh, programs that bring, that increase the data acumen of our students going through um, academia, but also gives them professional experience. And so the first one is the Rural IT Apprenticeship Program. And this is a program that was um, originally established by the General Assembly last, uh, not this past session, but the previous session in 2019 to uh, create an apprenticeship program in rural Virginia that allows individuals to uh, get mentorship from local IT organizations and then work on projects that are meaningful, not just to the organization, but to the Commonwealth as well. And one of those projects is being able to do data documentation for uh, for all of our data elements that we're registering in our enterprise data catalog. Uh, so for us, you know, being able to provide not just that, that education to uh, those individuals that are in the rural communities that are just starting to get uh, a foothold in, in the data acumen necessary to understand what data assets we have. But in the process of documenting those data assets, they are working with subject matter experts and data stewards and learning the business processes that drive the collection of that data. So at the same time that they're getting a data and technology uh, instruction, they're also getting knowledge of how government works and how does the government provide the services that you know end up in, in the data streams that they end up seeing as part of the, the, data, the data documentation process. So that's one project that we have. And the other one is the Commonwealth Data Internship Program. Now, this is a, a program that's run through our VITA Innovation Program that pretty much is a, is a matchmaking service between academic institutions and, and the students and research faculty therein with Commonwealth agencies that have data and problems they need to solve, but don't have the human resources to solve them, right? Either they don't have the human resources or don't they, have, or they don't have the tools or both, right? And so being able to have this matchmaking service that connects agencies with their data and problems to academic institutions with students that allows those students to work on real world professional level you know, issues that we're trying to deal with at the Commonwealth and then being able to take that expertise and be able to leverage it for, uh, you know, making them more marketable as they enter the, the private workforce. And so looking at this as now more of a talent conveyor belt, um, you know, we're constantly being able to pull talent from that, that, that talent stream so that we, we can do it in a cost effective way, but also provide a lot of value to those students and being able to giving them professional experiences they can leverage out in the real world. And I think that's a, that's a phenomenal collaboration between government, academia, and also the private sector, because the private sector is definitely involved in the rural IT apprenticeship program. Yeah, I think that's, that's very valuable. I and mean, you're right. I mean, Virginia's got some amazing institutions. Just in general, I think this whole region, you know, uh, people sort of underestimate the, uh, the brain power in sort of the, this mid-Atlantic corridor, if you will, <laughs> the Chesapeake region. I don't even know what you call it. It's from, from Maryland, DC and Virginia. This whole, this whole space has got a lot of real thought power. And, and I want to add that, you know, not only are you providing expertise and, you know, real, you know, real world problems with real data sets to, to, to people. I think that, you know, even just want to, there's maybe more of a comment than a question that, you know, while maybe governments cannot, you're right, they can't compete from a financial perspective. There's no way that it's, it's very hard to compete with sort of the, the pull of very large technology companies that have raised lots of money in our public, you know, from, from a salary perspective. But, but I do think that governments, local governments can compete from, 
I don't want to say a moral standing, but I think a lot of people kind of are wondering a little bit about how their data science expertise is being used. I mean, it's one thing to help, let's say, a large retailer better target, you know, their their recommendation system or their advertising system or, you know, better show better news feeds on a social media feed or something like that, which 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 is it has incredible economic value. But it's another thing to basically be looking at applying data to some real issues, you know, like whether it's the opioid right. epidemic, environmental issues, health, public health and safety issues. You know, there, there may, there, I think from that perspective, governments can compete, um, you know, from, from, from people who might feel like that their, their data science, um, expertise might be put to say better use. Yeah, I, I agree, Ron. And I think the, the, the term you're looking for is social impact, right? That they're, they're looking to have an impact on society and being able to, a positive impact, right? You, know, you can have a negative impact as well. But, um, you know, a lot of folks are, you know, feel and think and act altruistically and want to have a social impact and want to do good, uh, for the world. And, and that's all well and good. But the reality is, mind you, I've been a civil servant for almost 20 years now. So I can, I have a little bit of experience in this realm that we can come into this believing that this is what we want to do. But you also have to remember that data scientists are folks that don't necessarily like to sit still very long, right? They, they like to do things. They like to be engaged. They like to take action. You know, they like to do stuff. And, and in a government setting, you know, your ability to do stuff isn't, isn't always the, uh, the, the, the most, uh, the, the most easiest thing to do, right? Um, when you get into the government bureaucracy, there's a lot of issues that we have to deal with. Um, you know, first off, getting access to data in and of itself, right? We, we've had this discussion where, you know, data sharing isn't exactly the most natural thing, especially in, in, in government, um, organizations. And so individuals that come in with this, you know, altruistic idea that I'm going to come in and make a lot of, you know, make, make change for, for good, um, oftentimes get, get hit in the face with the realization that things move very, very slowly in government and you have to be extremely patient. And, and that, that patience isn't always the same attribute that made them a good data scientist to begin with. Right. Um, and so, you know, those, those are come almost like competing characteristics, if you will. And, and so, you know, we're, we're doing our best to kind of facilitate that. And like I said, and I think in the previous podcast, I said, remove the friction from the data sharing process. So we can let data flow, um, much easier and get it to the right people so they can implement these types of solutions. And I totally agree with you that there is, a, you know, this, this sense of altruism and, and, and desire for social impact. But the reality, when you do enter into, you know, the, the public sector, um, the, the reality that things move very slowly in the public sector is, is somewhat of, of a very discouraging phenomenon that, um, that oftentimes leads those same individuals right back to the private sector. And then, you know, as a, as a adjunct to their private sector life, they sometimes work for nonprofits or they, you know, volunteer in, in different other organizations and then they make their contributions that way. But I agree with you that, you know, that social impact is a great attractor to the public sector or, you know, public sector uh, work. But I think that we also have to do our part to make sure that we can get the data flowing and give them the right tools and access to the right environments to be able to do the kind of work that they want to do so they can feel fulfilled in their mission and not feel uh, stagnant or oppressed and not be able to complete the things that they want to achieve. Yeah, that's great insight. And I think, you know, it's, it's nice that you're aware of that as well, because I think, you know, 
the data scientists, there's a talent crunch and, you know, it's hard in general to, to get enough of them. And then if you have additional challenges, like you said, where, you know, they, they like to keep moving and government is slow. I think, um, you need to make sure that you're acknowledging that and then also trying to help make them feel fulfilled so that they'll stick around. So that's great insights that you have. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And can I add a couple of things? So one other thing that we've done is created a web-based training that all state employees can take on data governance and how we implement data governance in the Commonwealth of Virginia so that everyone can have at least a baseline understanding of the role governance plays in our ability to leverage data as a strategic asset. And then lastly, we're also holding our, our virtual Virginia Datathon October 1st and 2nd uh, with the Library of Virginia to be able to engage not just students, but also private the private sector in being able to solve real-world problems for the Commonwealth. And this year's theme is, is communities and COVID-19 and looking at all of the different perspectives on how COVID-19 has impacted various communities, not just geographic communities, but also social communities, religious communities, right? Any, any type of, of grouping that, you know, people feel fellowship within um, and establish that, that, you know, that sense of community within, um, how has the pandemic impacted them? Obviously, we have very limited perspectives. You know, we're only a handful of people. And so what we, we try to do is create a, an environment and an event where multiple teams of, of many different perspectives, many different diverse backgrounds can participate in, in this datathon and provide us with ideas for solutions on, you know, how do we mitigate this, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on these different communities? And this just happens to be, you know, the, the, the big fire roaring right now. But, you know, next year, it'll be a different one that we'll have to deal with. And then we'll, we'll, we'll have a similar type of event where we're bringing in multiple perspectives and, and engagement. So I think that's, that's a big part also of being able to make those bridges and establish those connections, not just between academia and government, but also with the private sector. Yeah, awesome. And thank you for sharing that, Carlos. And I want to thank you so much for joining us on this bonus episode of the AI Today podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes, as well as a link to our main episode with Carlos as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolytica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.